Well, good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Um, you're, you're, you are in good voice this morning. Um, we have uh, been well <clears throat> prepared to uh, hear the word preached this morning. Uh, please, uh, before I read uh, the scripture and uh, launch into the sermon, please join me in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, having acknowledged the fact that uh, we do sin, we do offend you and, and others, and in making that confession, we open ourselves to receive from you a word of grace, a word of absolution, a word of forgiveness, a word of assurance. The assurance that Christ is indeed our only hope of righteousness and that in him our righteousness is secure that whatever, Father, we um, desire to receive from you comes through those nail-scarred hands, through a work of your Holy Spirit. Father, we have gathered this morning not only to worship you, but to hear from you, to be encouraged, to encourage one another. We acknowledge, O oh Lord God, that we have had... Um, in some cases, a very busy and trying and stressful week. And so our hearts and our minds may not be fully attentive to what is happening here. And so we pray now for your spirit to focus our attention on what you would have us to learn and to apply from this, your word. We acknowledge, Lord God, that life is uh, stressful. In parenting, work, and dealing still with the... Uh, aftermath of perhaps an, even an ongoing pandemic. We hear news, Father, of war and rumors of war in Ukraine and beyond. And we are stressed by that because we recognize that while these things cause us some emotional pain, we, are, we feel powerless to do anything other than simply pray. And so we ask, O oh Lord God, that in this moment, for this sliver of time that we have come to worship you. You would give us to drink. You would feed us. You would calm us. You would strengthen us. You would remind us that in the midst of all of this chaos and disorder and unrest, we serve the God who is sovereign over all, who is asleep in the stern of the boat, not concerned at all because he rules the wind and the waves. So increase our faith. For you only appear to be asleep. We know your word tells us that he who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. That he watches over us constantly, daily, second by second. So Father, we open our heart now to your word asking your spirit to open our mind as well, that we would receive it, that we would apply it, that we would love you and our neighbor more deeply, more truthfully, more honestly, more sincerely. Father, this we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, we're going to move into Zechariah 7 and the rest of the book now uh, this is after Zechariah had, has, uh, has had his eight uh, visions in one night, 
And uh, time has moved um, from those, uh, that first series of visions into chapter uh, 7. Some almost two years have passed. And so as we pick up the narrative in verse 1 of chapter 7, the, the prophet writes that in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. It's about December, uh, roughly 518 B.C. Uh, now the people of Bethel had sent uh, Shar Etzar and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and of the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowlands were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets." Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. I don't know if you may be familiar with the term or not, but there is a phrase known as uh, crying crocodile tears. The, the phrase itself apparently uh, dates back to the mid-16th century, and it refers to someone who, although they are crying real tears, are only pretending to be sad. So while the tears are real, the sadness and the remorse is not. The tears are simply there for show. And it takes a skilled eye and, uh, to tell the difference between real tears and crocodile tears. It takes a skilled and courageous heart to challenge someone who is crying crocodile tears. But this is exactly what Zechariah does in our text this morning. According to verse 1, as we noticed, it's just over two years since Zechariah has had his last vision. And during this time... A lot has happened. Zerubbabel, the, the governor, has begun the reconstruction of the temple. The foundation has been laid, and the temple is about halfway finished. As I said before, it's probably early December 518 B.C., and in the midst of all of this activity, all of this sort of rebuilding of the temple and of the city, the walls uh, yet to be rebuilt, um, the people of Bethel send a delegation to Jerusalem. And they're led by a man named Shar Etzar, who is either a representative of the, the governor of that region, and he has a delegation with them. And they have come 
Specifically, uh, Zechariah tells us to entreat the favor of the Lord by seeking out the priests of the Lord and the prophets. Now, why the priests? Why the prophets? Well, because the, the priests interpreted the law and they provided revelation from the Lord at that time by casting the lots, the Urim and Thinnim, so they would be able to know from the priests what the Lord was saying. And they went to the prophets because the prophets could speak to them directly, uh, inspired by the Spirit of the Lord to speak His word of revelation to them. So this delegation comes with a very straightforward question, seeking a very straightforward answer. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Now, before we get to Zechariah's answer to that question, we need to do a little bit of review in terms of the history of what's going on here. First about the city of Bethel and then about the history of fasting. So if you go back to uh, 1 Kings, you'll, you'll know, you'll see there that after King Solomon died and his son Rehoboam ascended to the throne, there was a certain labor dispute that arose which created a division between the tribes to the north and the southern tribes. And this labor dispute was so severe that the nation of Israel fractured in half so that you had Judah and Benjamin in the south who were ruled by Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and then Israel comprising the remaining ten tribes to the north. And they were led by King Jeroboam I. Jeroboam I was a shrewd man and he realized that if the people of Israel, the people that he was ruling, if they went to Jerusalem as they were commanded to by the Lord to celebrate the three annual feasts, he feared that if Israel went up to Jerusalem to worship, he would lose control of them and they would defect from Israel to Judah. So Jeroboam, being a shrewd man, he casts two golden calves and he sets them up in the cities of Dan and Bethel. And he tells, he has the audacity to tell the Israelites... Behold the gods that delivered you out of bondage in Egypt. So Bethel is one of two cities where essentially a golden calf, an idol, was worshipped. Jeroboam even compounded his sin by instituting and uh, creating his own priesthood. So it's significant that these men from Bethel come down to Jerusalem signifying in very real time that it no longer, Bethel is no longer a place of idolatrous worship, but instead Jerusalem is now the spiritual nerve center and the place where worship of the Lord is to take place at the temple. So that's the background with Bethel. Fasting, we, we're familiar with fasting. You've read about it, I'm sure. It's simply a fast is something that is a deliberate and a sustained self-denial from all food, sometimes including drink. For a specified period of time, it may be in response to a natural disaster, a national tragedy, maybe even as a response to an emotional event such as the death of a, a loved one. Fasting is associated in the Bible with mourning, repentance, and sorrow for sin. And apparently while in exile, the Jews who were in exile established days of fasting to remember dates that were connected with the, the fall of Jerusalem and its destruction. So in particular, the question about should I fast in the fifth month 
has a direct link with the fact that, according to uh, 2 Kings 25, Jerusalem was destroyed, fully invaded by Babylon and conquered, on the 10th day of the 5th month. So the Jews in exile, much as we do with 9-11 and other, uh, December 7th, other significant dates, we, we memorialize those days and we honor them by certain activities. In the case of the Jews, they honored the destruction of Jerusalem on the 10th day of the 5th month by fasting. Now throughout the Old Testament, <coughs> fasting was regularly practiced, but it was rarely mandated. In fact, there is only one day of the year that, according to the law, the Lord mandated and required all Israel to fast. And that was on the Day of Atonement, the day when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would make sacrifice uh, first for himself and then for the sins of the people. So when the Jews are in exile and they establish these days of fasting, and there were other days as well, because Zechariah refers to the seventh month and, and others, these Jews decided that on their own, they would commemorate what had happened to Jerusalem by a day of fasting and remembrance. But God neither commanded them to do that, nor did he expect them to do that. And that's important to know as we move forward in the text. So now that the reconstruction of the temple has begun, and with the reconstruction of the temple, the reinstitution of sacrifices... The delegation from Bethel wants to know. And it's interesting that the answer, the question is asked in the first person, should I abstain as I have done? Zechariah's answer is addressed to all the people. So it's, it's spread out. So it's, it's um, made in a corporate sense. The actual answer to the question doesn't come till chapter 8. And the two, if you want to understand what's going on in seven, read seven and eight together. But the answer that Zechariah gives, because it's a fair question, it's, a, it's a, an honest question, if you will. Should I keep doing this? Now that the temple is going up, now the sacrifices will be made, should I continue to fast? Should I continue to weep? <clears throat> Zechariah's answer, or the Lord's answer through Zechariah, must have felt too... Uh, Sharetz uh, Etzar and his delegation, it must have felt like being hit with a bucket of cold water on a winter's day. It's not the answer they expected. When you fasted and mourned, says the Lord, in the fifth month and in the seventh, so they were really showing their piety here, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her in the south and the lowland were inhabited? There's a connection between what's happening here in chapter 7 to the introduction in chapter 1 where God speaks to the prophet and he reminds Zechariah as well as the inhabitants, the exiles who've returned, that I warned your forefathers and I warned your ancestors not to practice empty ritual. Not to practice, uh, if you will, a religion that had a form but no real substance. And God asks the question, where are your forefathers? They're, they're dead. 
Where are the former prophets? They're gone. What has remained is still the word of the Lord calling Israel, calling Judah, calling the inhabitants of Jerusalem back to a sincere, heartfelt worship of the Lord who has redeemed them. So the point of the response that Zechariah gives is simply this, that real repentance leads to a real change in lifestyle as a result of a real change in the heart. More to the point, with respect to the question that they ask about fasting, a change of diet is not evidence of a change of heart. Look at verses 4 through 7 again. This is uh, the prophet is speaking. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me and say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month for the 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her in the south and the lowland were inhabited? So the, the, the intent of God, the desire of God hasn't changed. He wants worship for sure. And, and fasting as an expression of worship, definitely. But what's the reason? What's the motive? What's the thing that prompts it is the intent and the design of his word here. Because at the heart of Zechariah's cold rebuke is a very painful truth that all their fasting and all their weeping amounted to nothing more than crocodile tears. They praise God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. They are, in fact, as far from him as the east is from the west. There is a form of of religion, but there's no substance to it. Because true fasting is an act of self-denial, the goal of which is to glorify God by seeking his forgiveness, his grace, and his mercy. You get the impression from Zechariah's answer, the Lord's answer through Zechariah, that the reason they were fasting was to remember in such a way as to lament their condition without any hope of things changing. So it's, it's almost as if they're fasting out of a sense of self-pity, not out of a sense that if we, if we fast and, and abstain from food and lament before God, we will come to understand why we are in this situation. There is a difference between fasting that seeks to favor grace and mercy of God based on a realization that the reason why I'm in this condition is because I have sinned. And... On the other side of that, there's a fasting that simply says, Oh, poor me. Things have gone so badly for me. I hope the Lord will see my tears and see my earnest plea. But if there's no desire to change, if there's no recognition that the reason why you're in that condition is because of your own rebellion, then your fasting and your weeping amount to nothing more than crocodile tears. Over time... What then should have been an occasion devoted to sincere reflection, genuine remorse, and real repentance for their sins, it had mutated into this mechanical ritual that routinely missed the mark of its intended purpose. Repentance, renewal, and the restoration of fellowship with God and with one another. You can see that this could apply not only to our corporate worship on a Sunday morning, but even our own devotional time throughout the week or our own Bible study. 
The purpose of that is changing of the heart, which leads to a changing of lifestyle. An inner transformation is what God is after here. This is what they require. This is the desire that is expressed through the word of the prophet to them. Fasting and mourning without evidence of repentance, without evidence of confession, without evidence of renewal. It's simply crocodile tears. In the language of the day, the kind of repentance that the Lord is calling for here, this kind of repentance, it brings the receipts. What receipts? The receipts that the prophet Micah talks about in Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, it's easy to look at those three things and say and, and apply them on a, on, a, on a macro level. Well, that's what a country should do. That's what a nation should do. But Micah's words and the rebuke that is issued from the Lord through Zechariah is at a personal level. Because it's easy to point at government officials. It's easy to point at corporate executives. It's easy to point at anyone else and say, see, they're not doing justice, they're not walking humbly, they're not doing kindness, and completely ignore the fact that we, as individuals, one to another and before God, with our neighbor, are to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before God. If we fast, it should be with that understanding. Show me that through my fasting, how I can do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before God, before others. Let me see how I can do that. I can't control what others do, but I can, in obedience to God, control the way I think, the way I act. This is the intent of the word of the Lord through Zechariah. That unless your fasting has at its root the desire to be changed and transformed by that act, so that real repentance produces a real change of heart, which produces a real change in lifestyle. It's just crocodile tears. It's going through the motions, which is why time after time we feel as if our walk with Christ and our relationship with Him is empty. Because we have begun to think and substitute the act for the change. And the act is important. But the heart is just as important, if not more so. Because real repentance is the, is the wholehearted desire to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the Word of God, and obedience to the Word and to the Holy Spirit. That real repentance presents our bodies as a living sacrifice to be used by God for His glory and for the good of our neighbor. That real repentance, it offers, it offers sacrifices that truly do Touch and move the heart of God. What sacrifices? David writes about this in Psalm 51. A broken and contrite heart, a broken spirit, God will not despise. And you can only get to that point of brokenness unless, as we have read through and have sung about, acknowledging that we have broken faith with God. And that it is our sin that has caused the break, not his distance or his apparent distance. But it is us. We must own that. And as we do, that's when the change takes place. That's when the transformation occurs. That's when the renewal begins to take effect. 
Because by refusing to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, the present group of returnees that asked this question were in danger of committing the very same mistakes that their forefathers did. It's, it's one of my favorite baseball players, old-time baseball players, a guy named Yogi Berra. And Yogi Berra was famous for these, these malapropes. And one of the things he was famous for saying is deja vu all over again. <clears throat> That's what Zechariah is telling these exiles. It's deja vu all over again. If you keep doing what you're doing without any real heart change, you can check all the boxes and still miss the mark of God's intention. So their problem was not a lack of knowledge. They were swimming in knowledge, if you will. The problem was a lack of obedience. And they had mistaken the ritual as heartfelt obedience. Well, if you just keep doing this, then God will act. And if he doesn't act, then it's his fault, not ours, because we've checked all the boxes. This is why God sends to the exiles, now return to Jerusalem. He sends them Haggai, he sends them Zechariah, he'll send them Ezra, and later on he'll send them Nehemiah to exhort them to obey God from the heart. That it's right and good to fast, but it must be done from the heart, not an external obedience. It has to be a change wrought by the Spirit of God. Fasting without obedience, you understand, is like faith without works. Dead. Fasting without obedience, in Jesus' words, focuses on cleaning the outside of the cup while real repentance cleans the inside of the cup, too. Real repentance rises from a really repentant heart, and it is characterized. How do you measure it? How do you judge it? How do you gauge it? Well, how fervent is your passion for God's glory? Remember, the, the, the thing that, that Jesus accused the, the Pharisees about and he warned his disciples against was parading their righteousness before men. Right? He says the Pharisees love to stand on the street corner and pray these long, eloquent prayers. It's really also something that Isaiah talks about in, in his prophecy that these people praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So this passion for God's glory is a heart thing that erupts in praise and obedience and in acts of kindness and humility before him. It finds also, does real repentance, real joy in being both a hearer and a doer of God's word. And it deals, it deals honestly with the reality of our sin, its cause, its consequences, how to address it by means of actively pursuing a right relationship with God and with others. When, when our children were younger, and I, know I don't often use them as uh, illustration uh, models, but in this case it applies, um, our, uh, our oldest son would, had a set of wooden blocks and he would build these really elaborate towers. And uh, he was like maybe five or six, and, and uh, our daughter Liz was about three, and uh, she had this little shopping cart, and she would just sort of steer that shopping cart very nonchalantly toward that tower of bricks, the blocks my son had built, and just one of those. 
and the bricks would, uh, and the blocks would come tumbling down. And Matthew would just erupt, Liz! And we'd say, Liz, why did you do that? And she would look at us very earnestly and sincerely. I didn't see myself do it. <laughs> we treat our sin against others the same way. Oh, I didn't mean to. It doesn't matter. If it inflicted pain, if it inflicted harm, if it did damage to someone's character, heart, or mind, intent is not the issue. It's the fruit of what we've done. Repentance acknowledges that and it owns it. That's why I've spent a lot of time in Psalm 51 in the Traveler's Advisory. Because when David is confronted with his sin with Bathsheba, he doesn't respond to Nathan and say, well, it's her fault. She was on the, on the rooftop with no clothes on. What am I supposed to do? I'm just a man. He says, no, 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 no. The sin is mine. And mine alone. I am responsible. And I have sinned against God in committing that sin. That's repentance. That's a heart that is rent by the recognition that I have offended the Holy One of Israel. And that repentance, that acknowledgement of breaking, that is the work of His Holy Spirit. You're responding at that moment. Because the reason why your heart is broken is not that you may bury yourself in self-pity, but that you may exalt and praise God for having brought that to mind so that you can be restored in fellowship with Him. And if possible, with the person against whom you've sinned. Real repentance, in other words, looks and sounds like what David says in Psalm 51, verses 13 and 15. Because having gone through the process of being broken, offering right sacrifices to God, and being restored into fellowship with God, David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So the idea is when we repent and are changed and transformed by the confession and rest and absolution, we are then encouraged to go out and tell others about this sin-forgiving, grace-lavishing, mercy-bestowing God. It's the heart of Paul's message. I, the chief of sinners, am telling you about the one who spared me, who set me apart even from my mother's womb, knowing the depths of my own degradation, so that in me the mercy of God would be demonstrated to all. It's not self-righteousness. It's not self-exaltation. It's coming to grips with the fact that we are all, at one time, enemies of God, saved by His grace, meant to relay and share that message with others. Because real repentance leads to a change in lifestyle. And the reason why God is upset, I think, with the fasting, if you will, is because we cannot, although we try, we cannot establish the terms of our own repentance. And boy, do we try. Right? I remember years ago, there was a, a movie, bad movie, I think it was, called The End, with Burt Reynolds. And the, the, the premise of the movie is he finds out he has cancer. And uh, he, at the end, he's, he's just bereft of hope, and he swims out into the ocean, and he's going to you know, kill himself. A friend of his comes down to the, the waterfront there as Burt Reynolds is swimming out into the sea, 
And he, he's just within earshot, and his friend says, the tests are negative. You don't have cancer. And as Burt Reynolds starts swimming back, he says, Lord, you know, if, I get, if, you know, if you help me get back to shore, I'll never. And he just lists all the things he won't do. And as he gets closer to shore, the list of things he won't do gets shorter and shorter and shorter. Because all he's really interested at that point is saving his life, not true reformation. We don't set the terms of our own repentance. God does. So even if we fast, the terms of that fasting are established by God, which is a true heart change leading to a passion for God's glory, a desire to be a hearer and doer of his word, addressing directly the consequences and cause of our sin, and then teaching others about the marvelous grace of God. So a change of diet doesn't necessarily imply a change of heart. A change of heart, however, will be revealed by a change of conduct. That's the next part in verses 8 to 10. Because then the, the word of the Lord again comes to Zechariah, and he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another. And so the word comes here. Um, remember, the, the word through Zechariah is, is really addressed um, and focuses on Israel's rebellious conduct, the conduct that led to the Babylonian exile. In warning this new community that has come back against committing those same mistakes, to ensure that that won't happen, the Lord reminds them again. What he is telling them here, he's told previous generations. Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy. Do not oppress. Let none of you devise evil. Render true judgments or render true justice. Justice is the uh, English translation. Judgment is the English translation of the Hebrew word mishpat. And it refers to the, the rights and duties of each party arising out of the particular relationship in which they find themselves. So if you're in a, a business relationship, you want to do justice to your partner. If you're in a, a marriage, you want to do justice to your spouse. You want to do justice to your parents. You want to do justice to your children. The relationship determines the kind of conduct that you engage in. And the task of righteousness, the task of people wanting to pursue righteousness, is to render justice in order to promote the good and secure the rights of those in your circle. Again, we tend to look at it on the macro level. And I think there's also a wariness too when we throw out the word justice, particularly in a biblical context, we're very concerned, oh, we're going to lean toward wokeism. That's not the issue here. The issue is how are we dealing with one another? Are we dealing with one another from a position of justice of true justice, of wanting to promote the good of another, or not? Because in its broadest application, what Mishpat, what justice seeks to do, it seeks to establish the proper ordering of all society. That's why we always talk about the family as sort of the essential building unit of the culture, because if the family breaks down, if there's no justice within the family, it spreads out. What you have to do is just go back and read Genesis 3 and following 
when the relationship between Adam and Eve is broken, their relationship with God is broken. It leads to a broken relationship with Cain and Abel and on through until Jesus comes to set it right. Because this mission of the proper ordering of society, that is the mission of Christ. It's described in Isaiah 42. And talking about the servant of the Lord, God speaks and says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. What will he do? He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Now, we know that this servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. His mission to establish justice and put things right culminated in his death on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He satisfied, did Jesus, the justice of God by dying in our place. And his death made us right with God. And because his death made us right with God, we can be made right with one another. He made it possible for us to join him in the proper ordering of all society. We look around and we see moral, religious, spiritual, political, social, and economic disorder. Our mission remains the same. To tell people about the one who can make all things right, has made all things right, and will make all things right. We cannot grow weary in well-doing because the one who commands us to do well does not grow weary himself. So we may not receive justice in this world, but we must always strive to treat others with justice, with righteousness, and truth. So render true justice, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy. These are two of my favorite words uh, in Hebrew. They're difficult to translate accurately into English because they're so broad in their meaning. Kindness is one of my favorite Hebrew words just because it's fun to say, chesed. It just sort of starts way back in the throat and just comes up, chesed. It, it, it can mean kindness. It's often translated in our English Bibles as steadfast love, faithful love, or unfailing love. Think of what a marriage looks like, what husband and wife practice unfailing love. We talk about unconditional love. That's one thing. Unfailing love? One scholar writes that the word represents a broad wedge in which the apex varies between love, mercy at one extreme, and loyalty, steadfastness, faithfulness at the other. At the latter extreme, it denotes that attitude of loyalty and faithfulness which both parties to a covenant should observe toward each other. What can you do if you know that the person who means the most to you will always love you, believe in you, stand by you, both to encourage you when you do well and to hold you accountable when you do poorly and still love you the same? That's the kind of love that Zechariah is encouraging here. And then he combines it with mercy, which in Hebrew, rachamim, is very closely connected with the womb. So it's, this is a tender love. This is a compassionate love. This is a love 
that in the New Testament, we're talking about the bowels of mercy. It, it just, it's a gut kind of thing. It's visceral. It's tender. And so you may render justice, but that justice, if it's hard, is, is if you will, measured and tempered by kindness and mercy. We see this in the way God deals with His people, the way God deals with us. So unfailing love and tender compassion should govern all of our relationships, especially those within the body. And then, of course, you don't oppress. You don't trample on other people. You seek to build them up. You seek to do things that will lift them up because the most vulnerable in our midst are the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, the, the sojourner. They are usually the ones that don't have very many rights. And then, let none of you devise evil, because vengeance belongs to God, and we are forbidden to nurse the spirit of hatred or practice indictiveness or seek revenge by devising schemes aimed at hurting others. Why this command has to be given to a group of people who are united by covenant to God and one another is beyond me. But I'm not naive, and neither are you. We know that sometimes the greatest harm that can be inflicted in our culture is by those within the same church. We plot, we gossip, we plan, we scheme. God says, if you're fasting and you're plotting, something's wrong. If you're fasting, I'm going to reveal to you, you need to do these things. And you need to stop doing some other things. Because real repentance leads to a change of heart, which leads to a change of lifestyle. A change of diet doesn't imply a change of heart, and a change of heart will be revealed in a change of conduct. And some of these changes will be a deepening love for God and His cure for sin, a constant hunger to know Christ, a continual thirst for the Spirit to fill us with Christ, who is the living water, and a steadfast striving against sin by pursuing truth, mercy, and justice to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbor. And then the last part, the very last section, verses 11 to 14, a hard heart, this is the negative, this is the downside, a hard heart guarantees a hard judgment. Because the generation that was sent into exile experienced the judgment and justice of God. And I love the images here. The images that are used to describe their behavior, they, they, they would describe that of a petulant child. Right? They turn the stubborn shoulder. Have you ever dealt with a child, particularly a toddler, who has turned the shoulder to you? It's like this. Right? Let me help you. Nah. Right? No. Right? And they stop their ears. Can't hear you. But the worst of it is, they made their hearts diamond hard. You turn a stubborn shoulder to the Lord, you harden your heart to His presence. You stop your ears, you stop hearing His word, and you harden your heart to His authority. When you make your heart diamond hard, you make an idol of your own spirituality, your own sense of righteousness, your own idea of justice. When you stop your ears like this, when you harden your heart, understand that the Bible says that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So if you turn a stubborn shoulder, if you stop up your ears, you make your heart, your heart hard, somehow you make it impervious to the life-giving, heart-changing, mind-renewing, soul-restoring power of the gospel. 
A diamond-hard heart, you understand, belongs to someone who is spiritually dead. And if you have a diamond-hard heart, you are in serious trouble. According to the Apostle Paul, you are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You are strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The good news is, if the gospel can penetrate that heart, and it can through the work of the Spirit, you can be brought into that relationship. But Israel refused to answer God's call to repent, and so he refused to answer them when they called out to him. Exile is one of the punishments that's issued in Deuteronomy. Now, why do all this? Why does Zechariah do all of this? Why does he delay putting off the answer until the eighth chapter? I think the review is a warning. Don't take the grace of God for granted. The Lord will care for you. He will provide for you. He will do great things for you. But there must be an obedient response to his call. The answer is delayed, I think, so that Zechariah can set the table, which we'll see in chapter 8, for the kind of fasting and weeping that does reach the heart of God and moves him to pay attention. And so should we weep? Should we fast? By all means. But only if it is for the Lord. That is only if the intention of the fasting and the weeping is in response to a true work of the Spirit and is a wholehearted pursuit of a deeper communion with God which will be revealed by the, the kinds of behavior and conduct that are spoken about in verses 9 and 10. Rendering true justice, kindness and mercy, not oppressing, not devising evil. Some years ago, it's probably, I don't know if it runs anymore, because now with streaming being the, the thing du jour, but some years ago, uh, DirecTV ran a series of commercials uh, encouraging people to give up cable and move to satellite TV. And the commercials were very, very clever, and they ran, had a consistent theme. One of my favorites it shows you a man sitting in his living room with his ear to the phone, and the narrator says, when your cable company keeps you on hold, you get angry. When you get angry, you blow off steam, and he's seen playing racquetball. When you blow off steam, accidents happen. He gets hit in the eye with a ball. He goes to the doctor. When accidents happen, you get an eye patch. So he gets an eye patch at the ER. When you get an eye patch, people think you're tough. He's on a local bus with a bunch of local tough guys. And when people think you're tough, they want to know how tough. Next thing you see, the guy running away from these toughs. And when people want to see how tough you are, you end up lying in a ditch. Don't end up lying in a ditch. Switch to, you know, get rid of cable. God's message through Zechariah to the return exiles is no different. Don't wake up lying in a ditch. Don't cry crocodile tears. Practice real repentance. Because real repentance leads to a real change of heart, which leads to a real change of lifestyle, which leads to real worship. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would um, help us as we contemplate uh, your word through Zechariah to your people, that we would consider how we can render true justice, show kindness and mercy, how we can lift up rather than oppress. 
if not physically, then with our words. How we can, O oh Lord God, seek ways to do good to others also. That our fasting and our weeping would be spirit-driven, spirit-led, spirit-inspired to produce the kind of change in conduct that would glorify you and help our neighbor. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.